Now, in our passage that we just heard read out, you'll have noticed we have three questions from three of Jesus' disciples. So if you glance down in verse 36, first of all, there is Peter, and he is troubled, and he asks Jesus, Lord, where are you going? And then if you glance down to verse 5, there's Thomas, he's confused. Lord, we don't know where you are going, so how can we know the way? And then if you glance up to verse 8, there's also Philip, more of a demand than a question. Lord, show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. So do you see this passage is split up into three questions from three of Jesus' disciples. And what is so reassuring about this passage is that Jesus does not rebuke their questions, welcomes them, engages with the disciples, and gives them exactly the answer that each of them need. One of the most sobering moments I had early on in ministry, so this was back probably in 2006, was when a lady came up to me um, in church after a sermon, and I could see that she was pretty hesitant, um, she was pretty nervous, she was struggling with her words, and she was, said, look, Mark, you know, I know we're not meant to have doubts, I know we're just meant to uh, believe, we're not meant to question God or question his word, but you know, I've got this question, and, and I want to ask you about it, and I hope you don't mind. And my heart went out to this woman, because here was someone who clearly was troubled in mind. She was confused. Um, she had questions she wanted to ask. She, she needed answers. And for whatever reason, she felt that she was unable to bring those questions you know, to God or to bring those questions to you know, the pastor at the time. And often people can have this misconception of the Christian faith that you are not meant to have any doubts, that you're just meant to shut your eyes you know, and believe in God and never doubt him. But look at the disciples here. These are the 12 apostles. Peter is one of the inner three. And they are bringing their questions directly to Jesus. They are direct with him. And you and I can be just as direct with Jesus Christ today. It could be you are someone here looking into Christian things. You'll have a whole host of questions, not least about the existence of God. Are you really there? about the claims of Jesus Christ. Can I really trust them? And what this passage is saying is you can bring your questions to God. It could be for many here, we are followers of Jesus. You've been following Jesus for a long time. We still have questions, don't we? We all struggle at times with doubt. Please do not be tempted to hide those doubts, suppress those doubts, ignore them. This passage reassures us to bring our doubts, our questions to Jesus Christ, and he promises to give each and every one of us exactly the answer that we need. Now let's look at the answers that Jesus gives these three disciples, these three particular questions, and how they apply to us today. First, in verses 13, 36 through to 14, 4, we see Peter's troubled heart. Peter says in verse 36, Lord, where are you going? Now, it's been half-term week uh, this past week from school. I have four kids, if you don't know, so all the four kids have been at home. And each morning, I've gone down the stairs, ready to go off to work. You know, I say goodbye, and every day, without failure, one of the children has come running up to me, grabbing my leg and saying, Daddy, please don't go to work. Please stay here. Please don't leave. We want you with us. And, you know, it's a little bit frustrating trying to get out the house with one of your legs, like, pinned back. But on the other hand, I love it, right? Because, of course, they love their daddy, and they want to be with their daddy, and they're sad to see their daddy go. 
And I tell you this because in a, I just want us to pick up some of the emotional anguish that is in Peter's voice as he asked this question. Lord, where are you going? We have given up everything to follow you. Are you not the Messiah and now you are leaving us? What on earth is going on? Well, look, straight away, Jesus reassures Peter in verse 36. He replies, where I'm going, you cannot follow now, but you will follow later. In other words, this is only temporary. You will see me again, but Peter doesn't get it. Verse 37, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay my life down for you. And then Jesus answers, will you really lay down your life for me? Very truly, I tell you, before the cock crows, you will disown me three times. Now, what is it about human nature that we feel that we need instinctively to do great things for God? Be the hero. I will lay my life down for you, Jesus, when a more honest assessment of human nature is that each and every one of us, deep down by nature, will disown Jesus before we will lay our life down for him. The very reason that Jesus Christ came to earth was to lay his life down for us. We need Jesus Christ to be the hero. We need him to live the life you and I fail to live. We need him to die the death we deserve for all our sin and all the times we disown Jesus by our words, our actions, disobey him so we can be reconciled to God. That is why Peter cannot follow now, because this is a death, a sacrificial death, that only Jesus Christ can die. On our behalf, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But this separation from Jesus Christ, for the disciples then and for us today, is only a temporary separation. In verses 1 to 4, Jesus says, Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. I'm going there to prepare a place for you. I will come back and take you to be with me. Now, I'm conscious that we live in what has been called Rabbit Hutch Britain. Have you heard this? That we actually have the smallest houses by square area and the smallest rooms in the whole of Europe. Um, I read some planning permission recently for an eight um, apartment block in Archway, where one of the apartments had a total floor area of 13 and a half square meters. That is just one room, 12 foot by 12 foot. Now, you'll be pleased to know that the council rejected um, the plans, but hey, look, I don't know what your living arrangement, maybe you live in a home like that, or ha you know, have a room like that. And so when Jesus describes heaven and the new creation as a room, it might not be at first very attractive to you, this picture. Just get like a poxy little room in heaven. No, what Jesus is doing here is describing the perfect home. Think of all the positive connotations that are normally associated with a home. Not bricks and mortar, a house, but home sweet home. Comfort, security, a mother's love, a father's provision, a place where you are accepted, loved, relational intimacy, there's no place like home. That is just a glimpse of what Jesus is promising here for every one of his believers. It may well be that some of you are here today from broken homes. 
But what Jesus Christ is promising here is a perfect home where sin and death are no more, where you are with Jesus Christ forever. The relationship you were made for, a relationship you can enjoy with him and his people for all eternity. So Jesus says, do not be troubled by the fact that he is not with us today in 2019 London. It is for our good. It is for our salvation. He went away for the forgiveness of sins. So our relationship with God can be restored and he has gone there to prepare a place for us, a perfect home where one day we will see him face to face and enjoy the very relationship we were made for and enjoy it for forever. Do not let your hearts be troubled. That's the first thing to see from this passage, a troubled heart. Second thing to see from this passage with Thomas is a confused mind. No doubt Thomas likes what Jesus is saying. He wants to be a part of this and a part of this prepared room and house and future. But clearly he's confused. Jesus has said in verse 4, you know the way to the place where I'm going. But Thomas says in verse 5, if you glance down there, Lord, we don't know where you are going. So how can we know the way? And then Jesus answers with these very um, famous words. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now look, these are famous words, but these are controversial words. You can see very clearly these are Jesus' words and him saying that he alone is the truth about God. That he alone is the way to eternal life. That any other way to God no matter sincerely believed by millions of people around the world, if it is not to do with Jesus Christ, it is a wrong way to God. And that can be very offensive to people today. How dare you say that your way is the right way? How arrogant to assume your religion is the right religion. How exclusive. No wonder there is so much strife and problems in this world when Christians continue to claim that they have the truth and try to convert everyone else to it. Have you heard anything like that? Have you ever thought that yourself? Incredibly exclusive claim from Jesus Christ here. I alone am the way, the truth. No one comes to the Father except through me. So what do we do with this? It's worth saying that thinking that you have the truth can lead to feelings of superiority. It can lead to you stereotyping others. It can lead to marginalization, abuse, even violence. But that is not a problem with exclusivity. That is a problem with the human heart which abuses the truth for its own purposes and it has got nothing to do with Christianity. Which right at the heart of it has Jesus bringing peace of all things. Harmony between us and God and one another. It's also worth saying that you and I do not have problems with exclusivity and exclusive claims in other parts of life. 
I can tell you that my wife is very thankful when it comes to exclusivity in our marriage. She doesn't want to be just one woman amongst many. She wants me to be devoted to her and her only. Teaching my children to read and write at the moment, I can tell you that they are learning quite painfully at times in spelling tests, that there is a right way to spell a word and a wrong way. And it doesn't matter how sincerely they think separate is spelt with an E after a P or definite with an A, they are sincerely wrong. And so it can be when it comes to God. There is a right way and there is a wrong way. Now, if you think that religion is fundamentally about humanity reaching out to God and trying to find him, then yes, there would be many ways of getting there, reflecting the diversity of humanity and all the different cultures. But the claim of Christianity is the opposite, that God himself has come down to us. He has reached down to us to save us, and he has opened up the one way to him. Remember getting caught in some quicksand once in Camber Sands whilst on holiday in East Sussex? I have since been told that quicksand is not as dangerous as we've been made to believe in the movies when you get stuck in it. It's only like a couple of minutes before you sink and go under. You actually stop around chest height, but I can tell you I was panicked at the time. And um, it's still pretty dangerous, particularly if you're close to the sea because where the tide comes in or if there's no one else around to rescue you because there is only one way out of quicksand. You know, as much as you struggle to get out and find a way yourself, you either sink further down or you will end up exhausted. The only way to be rescued out of quicksand is if someone else comes down and reaches out to you with their hand, with some rope, and pulls you out. So it is when it comes to a way to God. There is only one way out of our sin. There is only one way out of death. And it is not Buddha, it is not Muhammad, it is not any other Hindu guru, and it certainly is not you or me. There is only one person who has died on our behalf, only one person who has paid for sin, only one person who has defeated death. And that person is Jesus Christ. No one comes to the Father except through me. Do not be troubled by Jesus' teaching here. Yes, it is exclusive but it is not divisive or arrogant. This is a message of salvation for everyone, no matter your cultural, ethnic background. This is a message of life, of love, of forgiveness, for acceptance for all. But you need to accept it, and you need to put your faith in Jesus Christ for yourself. Which is something, by the way, that Philip seems to be hesitant about as we come thirdly and finally to the third disciple and the third question. Although, as I say, it's not so much a question as a demand. Philip says in verse 8, Lord, show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. The implication being Jesus is not enough for Philip at this stage, and Philip wants more. He wants a direct vision of God. Perhaps he wants an audible voice from God. Then I'll believe, then I'll really commit myself to you. But look at Jesus' answer in verse 9. Don't you know me, Philip? even after I've been among you such a long time. Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or at least believe on the evidence of the works 
themselves. Now, do you see what Jesus is saying here? He is saying, see me, and you have seen the Father. My words are the Father's words. The works I am doing are the Father's work. My whole life and ministry has been all about showing you God the Father. I am the exact representation of him. You think of a photo of someone, a friend, yourself. Obviously, the photo is separate from that person, but the photo is still an exact representation of that person. Think of the rays of the sun. The rays of the sun, they are, the rays are separate from the sun. They are still an exact representation of that sun. And Jesus Christ, he is separate from the Father. He is an exact representation of him. He is God in human form. He is God incarnate. He is the word made flesh. If you see Jesus, you see God. Put your trust in him. But Jesus does not stop there with motivations to believe in him. Already he said, believe in me, your sins are forgiven. Your relationship with God restored. Believe in me, there's a room prepared for you in heaven, a perfect relationship, a perfect home for all eternity. But now look at verse 12. Look what followers of Jesus can do now. Verse 12, very truly I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I've been doing and they will do even greater things than these. Now what on earth does this mean? How can anyone possibly do greater things than Jesus Christ himself? Does that mean we can walk on water? Does that mean we can feed 5,000? Does that mean that we can raise the dead? Sorry to disappoint you, it does not. We need to be careful here because this particular translation of the Bible, the New International Version, translates works as miracles, uh, works as things, when actually in the Greek, the word erga, meaning works, is used throughout this section. And works, erga, has a specific meaning in John's Gospel. We saw it earlier on in chapter 5, verse 21, God bringing spiritual life. This is the work God does. Chapter 6, verse 29, people believing in Jesus Christ. Don't turn to it now, listen to this. The work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. That is why Jesus connects his words in verse 10 to God's work, to make the point that it is through his words that people believe in him and have life in his name. So, in what sense can we say that Christians do greater works than Jesus Christ today? Well, Jesus was only ministering for three years in a very small part of the world, and actually not many people ended up believing in him whilst he was alive. But now, Christian ministry can take place across the whole world over thousands and thousands of years where billions of people can hear about Jesus Christ, believe in him, and have life in his name. And billions of people do. And in that sense, we can do greater works than him today. Now, I'm not sure if that disappoints you at all, to a bit of a letdown to hear that's what the greater works are, if anyone here was hoping to walk on water. But what I want us all to see is that what Jesus is saying here is that the greatest work of all now on earth, the most important thing you can give yourself to in life, is seeing people hear about Jesus Christ and put their faith in Jesus Christ. And this great mission that we are called on, we are not alone in, verse 13, as you head back to your offices. 
Whatever you ask in my name, Jesus says, I will do it. So again, I say to you, do not be troubled that Jesus Christ is not physically with us now. If you believe in him, you can have direct access to him through prayer. Bring your doubts to him, bring your questions to him, confess your sin to him. Ask him to strengthen your faith, ask him for boldness to share your faith, to do these greater works and know that one day, if you are trusting in him, you will certainly see him face to face in this perfect home that he has prepared for us. Let me pray that for us now. Let's pray. Father God, thank you very much for this passage of scripture where we see these three disciples bring their three questions to you and Jesus doesn't turn them away, engages with them, gives them just the answers they need. And I pray, Father, we would see the need for Jesus to go to the cross, to die the death that we deserve. Pray, Father, that you'd help us to see that he has gone to prepare a place for us, that he is the only way to you, and that he is with us now through prayer. He calls us on this great mission to share the message with others. And I pray for everyone here as they go back to their offices that you would help them to do just that. We ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen.